Church family, if you would open up in your copy of God's Word to Genesis, Genesis chapter 7, verse 11 through chapter 8, verse 19 is our text for today. title of today's message is God's salvation in a sea of judgment. God's salvation in a sea of judgment. A pretty pretty hefty passage before us today. I want to read it. Um, One of the things that the Lord um, tells pastors to do is not just to preach God's word, but to read it. Actually, specifically says one of the things that we're supposed to do is just read God's word. And so we're going to get to do a little bit of that today um, and uh, maybe a little more than normal. Um, but that's a good thing. And uh, we can just enjoy um, just listening and reading God's word. And um, and then as I read, um, you can also just be praying that the Lord will speak to our hearts today. But we're going to begin in chapter seven, verse 11, book of Genesis. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature... They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, 
The first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. It's the word of the Lord for his church today. God's salvation in a sea of judgment. Last week we began to really dive into the biblical account of Noah and the global flood. And we'd already learned a few weeks earlier from chapter 6, verse 8, that Noah was a recipient of God's grace. We see there in chapter uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, that God showed Noah favor. He was showed Noah grace. Then, as we study chapter 6, verse 9 through chapter 7, verse 10, uh, last week we saw Noah's faith on display. We saw this incredible display of faith. God saw that the earth was corrupted. It was our kind of one of our key words last week. And God said that he was going to respond to that corruption with destruction. He was going to ruin that which humanity was ruining because of their sin. He was going to do so by sending a flood. But God didn't just see corruption. He also saw Noah and he saw Noah's faith. Noah's faith was in the Lord and this was a visible faith. Noah's faith displayed itself through obedience to God. We even saw that fourth time in this passage, um, as we read today, uh, that Noah did what the Lord commanded him. When we stopped last week, Noah had followed all of God's instructions to build the ark, and God had commanded um, Noah and the animals to enter the ark, and Noah was obeying those commands. Chapter 7, verse 10 ends with these words, the waters of the flood coming upon the earth. They They were coming. The waters were coming. God was doing exactly what he said. Now, the passage before us today provides us with a little bit more details. It almost like backtracks just a little bit to give us some more details. Gives us more details regarding the boarding of the ark, the flood that came, and the escape from judgment experienced by Noah and his family. Church family, I I believe that Genesis chapter 7 verse 11 throughout chapter 8 verse 19 19 teaches us this, that God's provision of salvation is our only hope of being saved from God's judgment. God's provision of salvation is our only hope of being saved from God's judgment. We talk a lot today about judgment and a lot about salvation. The account of the flood is an account of both God's judgment and God's salvation. We see God's judgment being poured out upon sin and upon the corruption that sin brings. But we also see in this passage a beautiful display of God's saving grace. Unfortunately, many people, even many Christians today, do not believe that Genesis chapter 7 verse uh, through chapter 8 describes a literal flood which covered the entire globe. However, the text of Scripture could not be clear. Not only does this passage itself provide us with no doubt that the flood actually happened, other passages of Scripture speak of the flood as an actual historical event. The prophet Isaiah mentions the flood. Jesus mentions the flood. The writer of Hebrews mentions Noah and the ark that he constructed. Peter, the Apostle Peter, in both of his epistles... 
First Peter and Second Peter speaks of Noah and the flood. And when you read those other passages, you realize that they don't make any sense unless there was an actual flood that covered the planet and God actually rescued this real man whose name was Noah and his family in an ark. Now, some will say that there was an actual flood, but they'll say that it wasn't a global flood. It was what they call a localized flood, like we see today. However, that view contradicts God's word as well. It also just doesn't make sense. For instance, if the flood described here was only a local flood, then how did it kill everyone in the whole world? Certainly, there would have been some who would have survived because they would not have been where that local flood was. Also, if the flood was a local flood, then why did Noah have to build a boat? Why couldn't he have just moved his family to an area where the flood wasn't going to be? Building the boat doesn't really make much sense unless that really was the only way of escape. And if the flood wasn't a local flood, then God's promise in chapter 9, which we'll get to uh, maybe in a couple of weeks, God's promise in chapter 9 to never destroy the earth again by means of a flood really makes God out to be a liar. Because we see all around us today local floods. And so that promise had to be something other than a local flood. It was a promise not to destroy the whole earth at one time with a flood. Which means this was a real flood that was a global flood. God's word is very clear on that. There are reasons why people don't want to believe that. Most of those reasons come down to a desire to explain the origins of Our world apart from God creating the world as is described in the book of Genesis. We could talk a lot more about that, but I don't want to spend all of our time today providing an apologetic for the historical reality of the flood, though that is very important. God has included the account of the flood in Scripture not merely to tell us about an event that happened, but also to teach us about himself, to teach us about us, to teach us about his judgment, and to teach us about his salvation. And I want to share with you three truths from this passage today. And the first is this. God's judgment is fierce and it is final. God's judgment is fierce and it is final. Most of our thoughts about the flood revolve around the ark and God's rescue of Noah, his family, and the animals on the ark. The rescue part of it. But there's more to the story. Many of our artistic depictions of the flood reveal our lopsided remembrance of the story. Just open up any children's Bible or a mural on a wall, and we see a lopsided depiction of this story. Smiling animals on a boat is only half of the picture at best. I'm not really sure how much smiling they were doing while they're in the middle of a flood, even though they were on the boat. Families scrambling up rocks, people treading water until there was no strength left in their bodies, young and old suffocating as they sink under literally the flood of God's judgment is the other half of the story. It doesn't always make it into our wall murals and our children's Bible pictures. Now, I agree. God's salvation is much more enjoyable to talk about. But church, God's judgment is just as real. And actually, God's salvation doesn't really make much sense unless there is something from which we need to be saved. And that something from which we need to be saved is 
the righteous judgment of God towards sinners. The best way I can think of to summarize the judgment of God we see in these verses is to say that it is God's judgment, that it is fierce, and it is final. I spent a little bit of time talking about this. We've already been told back in chapter 6, verse 13, and chapter 6, verse 17, that God is the one who is sending this destruction. He says, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. It's God's words. God says, I am doing this. It is, it is the destruction. It is my judgment that's being poured out. And it's his righteous response to sin. But we also see that this judgment from God is not just a little slap on the wrist. It's not. It is, it is fierce. It is unescapable for those trying to escape on their own. Chapter 7, verse 11. Let's know the language. The fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were open. We're talking about judgment coming up from the ground. Judgment coming down from the skies. And those who found themselves in the middle of God's judgment literally found themselves in the middle of God's judgment. Surrounded on all sides. It's a fierce judgment this language is painting a picture of a rush of judgment, not just a little trickle of judgment. Notice then how the flood is described in verses 17 through 24. You can glance your eyes. Your translation may have a little bit different word here, but notice this repetition. Verse 18 says, The waters prevailed and increased greatly. This is chapter 7. Verse 19, The waters prevailed so mightily. Verse 20, the waters prevailed above the mountains. In verse 24, the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. That repetition is not there by accident. Four times God speaks of the waters prevailing. What does that mean? What does it mean to prevail? It means that no one upon whom God's judgment was poured out would escape. No one upon whom his judgment was poured out would escape. Think about it when a boxer prevails over his opponent. We say, well, this one prevailed. This boxer prevailed. What it means is that his opponent was overcome by and succumbed to the strength and the fierceness of the winning boxer. Here we see the sinful humanity being overcome by the fierceness of the judgment of God. The church is not just fierce, it's also final. This judgment is Final. There's a finality to this judgment. No one who began to be wiped out later escaped. The destruction of the wicked was final. Notice this language of finality used in verses 21 through 23. All flesh died. Verse 22. Everything on the earth, uh, on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the, was the breath of life, died. Verse 23. He blotted out. Every living thing that was on the face of the ground, they were blotted out from the earth. Friends, God's judgment is fierce and it is final. We could say it this way, God's judgment is no joke. The Scripture tells us many times in many places that the final judgment for those who die dead in their sin will come, that final judgment will come in a place called hell. People throw around the word hell so flippantly. We hear that word all the time, but normally it's either in a joking manner or just without any thought given to it. I heard a comedian recently laughing about going to hell. 
literally was making a joke about himself going to hell. Church, there may have been people who laughed at Noah while he was building the ark, but I don't think there's ever been someone who was laughing while they were drowning. I've rescued a few drowning people before throughout the years. None of them were laughing. I can see each of their faces, and in each case, there was a look of panic and fear in their eyes. It was no joke. Jesus described hell as a place where there is, quote, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Matthew 25, verse 30. And, quote, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Mark 9, 48. Jesus described God's wrath as, quote, eternal punishment. Matthew 25, verse 46. God's wrath towards sin is no joke, and there's no escape for those who find themselves suffering under the weight of it. When it comes, it is final. In a moment, we're going to look, thankfully, at the saving side of the door of the ark, which God shut. On one side of that door, there was salvation. But before we celebrate the saving side of the door of salvation, we've got to understand that while Noah and his family were being shut in, everyone else who had rejected God were being shut out. And Jesus told a parable. A parable about ten virgins who were waiting on the bridegroom. And they were going to go with the bridegroom to the wedding celebration. When the bridegroom finally came, five of these ladies were prepared to follow him, and five were not. Jesus said this, Those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. It's done. There's no, no, more, no more hope. No second chances. The time for God's judgment comes. It's fierce and it is final. But church, so thankful that I don't have to end the sermon today. I don't have to say, and there you go, that's it. That's, that's what we know about God. The good news is that God, the God who judges is also the God who saves. That's the second truth that I want to share with you. God's judgment is fierce and it is final. But the God who judges is also the God who saves. Church, this is one of the most beautiful truths about our God. He is both wrathful towards sin and He is merciful toward sinners. There's not another God in this passage who comes in to counter the judgment brought about by the one true God. It's not that this God is judging and then some other God comes in to provide rescue. There's not an angry God and a happy God. There's not a God who judges and a God who saves. There's one true God. And that one true God works both judgment and He works salvation. We saw how God was the one who sent the flood. He said, I am sending a flood to destroy. But I also want us to notice that God in this passage is the one who provides the salvation. Last week we focused a lot on Noah and Noah's faith. And I think rightfully so. We have to do that as we study this passage. Noah's faith is on display. 
But Noah's not the main character of the story. God is. God is. I want you to see three things about this salvation that God provides. First, the salvation is God's work. We always have to stay focused on that truth. Salvation is God's work, and we see it on display here. There's three key verbs that we see. Key action words that describe the salvation that Noah and his family experienced. They're the words shut, remembered, and made. There are three verbs that we see in this passage that really drive a lot of the action and God's saving action in this passage. Shut, remembered, and made. In each case, God is the subject. God is the one doing the actions. God does the shutting, the remembering, and the making. Chapter 7 describes Noah and his family and the animals boarding the ark. And then we read this in chapter 7, verse 16. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. Brothers and sisters, that's significant. We don't want to read too quickly over that. Noah didn't close the door. God closed the door. He shut Noah inside his provision of salvation. I really don't think that's just figurative. I think Noah probably watched. I think he watched as the door closed. It says the Lord shut him in. I think Noah watched as the door closed and knew it was the Lord. And as the rain beat against the ark, and as the waters rose, and as the wood of the ark creaked, I can just imagine that Noah, like any of us, would have kept glancing at that door. Is any, is any water seeping in? Day after day, he saw no water seeping through, no judgment pouring in, and Noah knew it was the Lord who had shut that door and was keeping it sealed. There would be no doubt in Noah's mind or in the mind of his family that God was the one responsible for saving them. And we know that Noah credited God with doing this work of salvation because as soon as he got off the ark, he appropriately worshipped the Lord. Church, the only reason that door stayed shut until their salvation was complete was because God willed for it to be shut and to be kept shut. In the prologue to the Gospel according to John, we find these words. But to all who did receive Him, speaking of Jesus, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Friends, God alone stands between His wrath and saved sinners. God alone saves. He alone secures our salvation. It is God who saves and no one else. The Lord shut him in. A second word that I said was the word remembered. Remembered. After describing the fierce and final judgment of God, um, there kind of at the end, that last section of verse of chapter 7, we read this in chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, he remembered. This word remembered is actually a key word throughout all of Scripture, not just here in the account of Noah. Several times in God's word, we see God remembering. Now, we don't want to have the wrong understanding of this word remembering when God does, is doing the remembering. The word is not used to refer to something or someone coming to God's mind after he forgot. You know, oh man, I, I forgot. Forgot that I, you know... Left the oven on. Oh, I forgot to feed the dog. I, it, it left my mind and it came back in my mind. 
God, God doesn't look down and, and go, oh man, I forgot about Noah down there. They're still floating around on the ark. Completely forgot about him. That's not what this word remembered means. This word is used to describe, not just here, but other places in the scripture, God's movement toward his people for the purpose of saving them. That's how this word is used when, it's, when, when God is the one doing remembering. It always, it's always refers to God's movement toward his people for the purpose of saving them. When God remembers, it means he's getting ready to come to the rescue. One theologian put it this way, God's remembering always implies his movement towards the object of his memory. And another theologian said this, when God remembers, he acts. There's always this action of God that follows his remembering. Later in Genesis, we see God wipe out the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their sinfulness. But we also see him rescue Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. And in Genesis chapter 19, verse 29, we read this. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. And here's the action and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Years later, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and they're crying out for rescue. And Exodus chapter 2 verse 24 says, And God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And then if you read the next several chapters, what follows are really, I think, some of the most exciting chapters in Scripture as God works a mighty deliverance for the people of Egypt. He remembered them and what followed was His act of deliverance. Many, many years later, there was a young pregnant woman who sang a song of praise because in her womb was the Son of God. And this was one of the lines in Mary's song. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And there was action that followed. For about 33 years later, she watched as that baby in her womb who is now a man, was hanging on a cross, accomplishing God's saving act for his people. Friend, when God remembers, he acts. And that act is an act of salvation. The Lord shut them in. The Lord remembered Noah. And then that third word is the word made. We see that in chapter 8, verse 2. After he remembers, here comes the action, right? He remembers Noah, here comes the action. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Listen, we got to put ourselves in, in, in Noah's place for a moment. Just because the rain had stopped didn't mean Noah and the others on the ark were safe. They're kind of stuck on a boat in the middle of a world that's full of water at this point. They needed the flood to go away before their salvation would be complete. But there was nothing to worry about. God remembered and God acted. God not only kept the water out of the ark, He also got rid of the water so that Noah and his family and animals could get out of the ark. So what we see here in this account is from start to finish, salvation is an act of God. It's God's work from start to finish. We not only see that this is God's work, we see that salvation is a singular work. It's a singular work. And what I mean by that is that God provides only one way of salvation in this passage. God doesn't provide a plurality of ways of salvation. God provides a singular way, one way of salvation. If you were on the ark that Noah built, you were saved. If you weren't on the ark, you were not saved. End of story. I'm not going to spend much time on this point, but it is extremely essential. 
So many people in our world believe that there are many ways to God, but Scripture is clear from Genesis to Revelation. There is one way of salvation. I think Jesus summed it up best when He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Salvation is God's work. Salvation is singular work. But also salvation is a complete work. It is a complete work. By complete, I mean that God doesn't give us a partial salvation. He doesn't save us partially or halfway. He gives us a complete work of salvation. We've already seen how God not only kept the water out of the ark, but He also sent the wind so the water would subside. And if you read through the rest of chapter 8, as we did earlier, we see that God then provided a resting place for the ark. Which, by the way, I don't think it's coincidence that we see those words used, because if you'll remember... Noah's name sounds like the Hebrew word for rest, and his father gave him that name with the hopes that this son of his would bring rest and relief from the curse that came in the fall of mankind. And now we see the ark finding a resting place. God provided that. And if we keep reading, we see God providing the necessary information um, through means of a dove so that Noah would know when it was safe to start preparing for the unloading of the ark. And then we see God tell Noah exactly when it was time to get off the ark in verse 15. Church, we can find peace and joy in the fact that God doesn't save anyone partially. He saves us completely all the way to the end. Everyone who got on the ark stepped off of the ark. Everyone who trusted God's plan of salvation enjoyed the completion of God's salvation. When we consider the gospel, when we consider salvation through Jesus, we can rest in knowing that if our faith is in Jesus, we have received a full and complete salvation. Everyone, listen to me. Sometimes it's easy to doubt as followers of Christ, does God still love me? I'm not perfect. Listen, everyone who steps into salvation through faith in Jesus will one day step into the new heavens and the new earth. Just like everyone on that ark stepped out into, in a way, God's new creation. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And Paul wrote to the Philippians, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Christ Jesus. Salvation is a complete work. So church family, we've seen that God's judgment is fierce and God's judgment is final. We also have seen the good news that the God who judges is also the God who saves. There's one more truth from this passage that the New Testament demands that we see and respond to. Truth number three is this. God is sending a greater judgment. Hear that. God is sending a greater judgment, but He has already sent a greater Savior. God is sending a greater judgment, but He's already sent a greater Savior. You see, it's easy living on this side of the flood to think, well, that's all well and good, but what does that have to do with me? I think I'll let Jesus answer that question. Matthew 24, verse 37 through 39, Jesus said this, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. What is Jesus talking about? He's saying that another judgment is coming. And just like the flood swept away people who were too focused on living for the pleasures of this world, the coming judgment is going to do the same. This judgment Jesus is referring to is the time when He comes back to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the Son of Man. He's talking about Himself. And He's coming back one day to execute the judgment of God, to carry it out. Scripture tells us, He's going to separate the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats, the believers from the unbelievers. And Revelation tells us that Jesus will tread out the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Friend, a greater judgment is coming. It's a judgment where we stand face to face with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But the good news is God has already sent a greater Savior. Friends, we need more than a boat to be saved from the wrath of God that is coming one day. But praise God, God has provided a better ark. And who is this better ark? It is the Son of Man. It is Jesus Himself. Jesus is the greater Savior who can save us from the greater judgment. You say, how can Jesus be both the Savior and the judge? Well, the same way we've seen in Genesis. God is the one who judges and God is the one who saves. Jesus not only said that the Son of Man was coming back one day to bring judgment, He also said this. He said the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. He said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The judge who's coming one day to pour out the wrath of Almighty God has already come. And He's taken God's wrath upon Himself. Friend, Jesus came the first time to provide salvation by dying for your sin. He rose up from the grave. He's coming back one day to bring judgment. The Gospel of Jesus is the good news that He has worked salvation for you and for me. And that salvation is Jesus. Listen, as Noah walked through the door of that ark into a guaranteed, complete salvation, we must walk into salvation through Jesus. He is the singular way. And He provides a complete salvation. Jesus said this, I am the door. If anyone enters by Me, he will be saved. Singular, I am the door. If anyone enters by Me and complete, he will be saved. Church, the God who sent the flood to wipe out the earth is the same God who shut Noah and his family in the ark. The God who killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt is the same God who rescued all the firstborn among the people of Israel. The God who swallowed up the Egyptian army as they crossed the Red Sea, that's the same God who provided a safe passage for His people as they crossed the Red Sea. The God who caused the wall around Jericho to fall so that the people would be destroyed is the same God who rescued Rahab and her family whose house was built into that wall. The God who sent the great storm to rebuke Jonah is the same God who sent the great fish to rescue Jonah. The God who is preparing an eternal fire for the devil and his angels and all who die in their sin is the same God who is providing and preparing an eternal resting place for all who trust in Jesus. You see, the God whose judgment we should fear is the same God whose salvation we should receive. I don't know can't see your heart. But God does. 
And if you realize today, by the working of the Holy Spirit through His Word in your heart and life, if you realize today that you are a sinner living now under God's condemnation, but God through the power of His Spirit is drawing you to His salvation through Jesus, you realize that today you stand condemned under the sea of God's judgment, but you also realize that there is a greater Savior who has come. Friend, don't run away from the God who judges. Run to the God who judges. But He's the one who can save you from His wrath. God's provision of salvation is our only hope of being saved from God's judgment. And listen, it's Jesus. It's no one else. It's nothing else. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you have never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, maybe it's something you've just rejected your whole life. Maybe it's something you've kind of played around with, but it's all really been kind of a game. It's been pretend. And today... You feel the weight of your sin. Would you just confess that sin to the Lord and ask Him to save you through Jesus? He has promised to save everyone who repents of their sin and believes and trusts in Jesus for salvation. So right now in your heart, would you cry out to God and say, God, save me from your judgment that is coming. Save me through Jesus, the Savior who you have already sent, who died on the cross to rescue me, and who rose up from the grave, and who's coming back one day to gather all of His people into His eternal dwelling. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the good news of Jesus. Thank You for being up front with us about Your coming wrath. Lord, you don't sugarcoat it. You don't water it down. It is real. It is fierce. And it is final. But God, also thank you for teaching us through your word how we can be saved from that wrath. God, I pray that you would work salvation in hearts and lives today. If there's anyone here who has never trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. God, for those of us who have believed in Jesus for salvation, who know the joy of having our sins forgiven, God, remind us that it is Your work and it's not ours. And so we give You the glory and the honor and the praise for it. And we go and we tell a lost and dying world this good news that they too can be saved from their sin. Father, would we respond in obedience as we lift our voices and worship to You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.